As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and the successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Joel, Alex, and Michael, founders of Black Salt Games. So join us as we explore their journey. And a quick aside, if you haven't already done so, please consider dropping the show a five-star review on whatever podcast service you're using, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it happens to be. All reviews help with the reach of this show. That's me done. Enjoy the episode. So today I'm joined by Joel, Alex, and Mikey. How are you all? How are you all? Yeah, great, thanks. Good to hear. Um, Exciting time. Um, We won't go into anything super specific because at the time of recording, we don't have anything super specific, but we are getting fairly close to the launch of Dredge. So how are you all feeling at this particular point? Um, I personally am feeling pretty good. I think I'm I'm really happy with with where the game is. Um, You know, we're on track and the reception to the game um, has been fantastic like the the demo was really well received and our communities um really keen on it uh, so that's it's awesome i'm i'm pretty good until i really think about it and i get nervous <laughs> yeah it's definitely that nervous excitement that yeah. i think i've got where it's just like yep yeah, we've pretty much done i think we've put ourselves with the best foot forward going into everything so we're pretty happy with what we've got but nah now nah, just comes down to what everyone else thinks of it yeah it just becomes in the hands of the public and the critics and all that sort of thing which yeah. I don't know. Your point there's still a good one, though. If you feel like you've come away from the project, we've done everything we can, we feel confident, then I guess you, I guess there's a degree of satisfaction that comes straight away. Um, sure, there's these other variables, but I think you've got to be happy within yourself first, and I'm glad to hear that, that you are. So um, before we dive into all that, this is Dev Diary, a series you talk to developers from throughout the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and the journey has led to this current point in time now while we just touched on Dredge, and that's obviously one of the most recent chapters, there are several things that came before that, as well as, of course, just the consumption of video games from an even younger age. So I guess the question for all three of you is, uh, where did video games first come into your life in the first place? Do you recall what some of your first gaming experiences were? Maybe even what the first game was? I think I do recall my first game, and I'm pretty sure it was a Batman game for the Game Boy Classic, like the original big thing. Um, and I would have been, I don't know, like six or something and, you know, absolutely terrible. Couldn't beat the first level kind of thing. But, you know, I just played and played that thing over and over. Um, and yeah, I've just always, always grown up with video games through, through the console generations. Yeah. What about you, Mikey? What was your first game? Uh, yeah. So, um, I think for me, it was probably Age of Empires. I think the first one. And then that just also put me on the route to like, I want to make games as well. And it also got me on the path of just liking ancient history and all of that stuff as well. So it set up like a whole chain of events. Very but the cool. funny thing was, it was this, I played this other random RTS style game at a friend's place. And then I was asked my parents for that game. And then they got me Age of Empires. And then I remember just being super salty about it when it first came through. But then playing, I'm like, no, this is actually way better than the other one that I was playing <laughs> anyway. But yeah, ever since then, when I learned how to do all the, uh, like all the map editors and stuff like that, just became obsessed with the whole thing. I mean, no offense to that other game, but do you remember what it was? 
Uh, no, I cannot remember what it was. I just had random, like, barbarian. It, was, it wasn't Warcraft, but it had, like, these barbarian characters, and they look really cool and everything like that as well. But can't remember what the name of it was. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Mm, uh, mine's probably older than that. My, my, my dad had a Commodore 64 for work. So the first games I played were on, on that, and they were like The Last Ninja and Whizball. If anybody yep. knows what those are. <laughs> so I mean, I, I definitely remember The Last Ninja. Yeah. Yeah, it's got a it's got a real iconic soundtrack. I'll still go back and like look it up on YouTube sometimes to listen to it to feel nostalgic. I mean, when games at that age are having that sort of effect, still, that's when you know they've really nailed it, right? Yeah. So how did all of your tastes start to develop from there? Obviously, Mikey, you got the, the RTS bug very, very quickly, um, and you've kind of half-answered my very next question as well with that. But, um, but yeah, I, mean, I guess for each of you, how did those tastes start to evolve as you grew up and presumably got more exposure to different consoles, PC, handhelds, Game Boys, whatever it happened to be? Um, how did things change from there? Were there any particular games, franchises, genres that you really attached yourself to? I guess for me, um, growing up and, and going to the sort of major consoles, I was mainly playing, you know, the large franchises, Spyro, Crash, um, all of those sorts of things. It's really when I started PC gaming, you know, getting into Steam, getting exposure to a lot more indie games that my taste started changing towards the indie space. Yes. And, you know, that's that's been like that for the last uh, 10 years at least. Um but I, I mean, I still consume the the main franchises, um, but basically, basically everything really. What about you? Yeah. So for me, I guess like after the Age of Empires thing, I think it was the next progression was all right. What else has swords in it? And then so it just became going to the PlayStation side. It became like some of the fighting games, and then I got really into Tekken for quite a while. Um, but yeah, what else was there? I think the next big one that pretty much took over my life was Diablo Four or Diablo Two. And then, so that game just really took over my life, and that was the first time I actually became like a uh, borderline addicted to a game, just because of like just keep playing it. And then I've got a younger brother, and then yep. so we always had to fight for time on the same PC, and then we're also fighting over like the internet with our parents as well, because this was back in the days of dial-up, so people couldn't contact us in the evenings. So it's just like yeah, so trying to balance up all of that sort of stuff was pretty cool and interesting all at the same time. Well, what's more important, really? I'd take Diablo two over a phone call from the family any, any day of the week. <laughs> I also, I also did notice the uh, the Diablo four thing there. So you're clearly um, pretty hyped for that coming release. I'm still keen on it. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I just like that whole all those RPG sort of things and everything as well. So yeah, that one's still right up there. I'm like, still got that whole. Like, is it going to be as good as some of the other ones? Are they bringing it back to the way that Diablo two was? Because if it is, then I'm super excited about that. Because I think I bought all the special editions for all of those things every time they've come out so yeah, right. waiting for the next one to drop because at the very least i know the art's gonna look cool so very and true. as an artist i'm just going to be loving that anyway that it turns out so i'll enjoy it i'll be definitely playing it good to hear and alex uh sorry i was i was i got caught up listening to your answers what was the <laughs> how did your taste in games evolve where did when do you, um, did you get into indie games because you're you're pretty similar games. to me like in our taste i think Probably like, um, uh, what's the first indie games I played? Um, does it count like, like Newgrounds sort of like flash yeah, game counts. era? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, <laughs> in high school, that was massive. Um, but then it kind of went away for a little bit when AAA and stuff. Like, no, nobody was like, at, at the time, I didn't think people were like making a lot of money or anything off of those games. A lot of them were just hobbyists, hobbyists and stuff. But then. Uh, Braid 
I think. It's probably one yep. of the early ones. Yeah. I would call Braid Out as one of my first indie experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And clearly it impacted both of you then based on that reaction alone. What was it about it? I think for me it was the ending. It was the the twist and the the realization that games could be more than what they seemed to be. Yeah. Um you know, suddenly suddenly you got this kind of rich story coming out of what on the surface seemed to be side scrolling puzzle levels. And actually there was there was something more going on. Yeah. So really, I, I don't think I ever got to the <laughs> I don't think I ever got to the end, but I was just I played it and I was just happy to see like um, that kind of game getting widespread attention. Yeah, because I remember that came out when I think I was at media design school, I think, because it was just like all the artists were like going, oh crap, we could actually make something like this as mm -hmm. well, because like we've already made a couple of side scrollers and if it's just art, then we could just reskin the games that we've already been making here. <laughs> yeah, I think there's probably a lot of developers out there that really owe a lot to games of that particular period of time, the indie games of that particular time that I think opened up a lot of eyes for people to realize, oh, hang on, I don't need to be one cog in a giant machine in terms of AAA or like hey i can actually do this on my own or in a very very small group of me and my friends or whatever that combination happens to look like and yeah braid was certainly one of those very first games as well so yeah, yeah. um are there any i mean mike you've already obviously outlined the rts side of things already but are there any particular genres that perhaps stick a little bit more with with anyone are you pretty uh, fluid you're pretty you know pretty happy to just dabble in different spaces yeah, pre I mean, pretty much anything. I think a lot of the ones that stick with me and that I end up sinking hundreds of hours into are, are you know, the open world games that tend to be huge anyway. Um, you know, just getting immersed in those worlds. Um, recently, obviously, Breath of the Wild and things like Red Dead 2, you know, they just sink up hundreds of hours. Um, and w with Dredge, I think one of the things we wanted to create was like an open world that wasn't hundreds of hours long. It's, yep. you know, it's a small open world. Um, similar, I think, to the way that a short hike does it. It's yep. like three, four minutes open world, but it, you don't have to spend your whole life playing that game to experience it. It's a, it's a playground rather than a whole a whole town that you can uh, rummage through. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah the scale, I guess, is, is important there. And I've certainly, I mean, from the, the demo time at PAX, the demo time on... Um, steam next fest and all those you know it's been it's been widely accessible for people which has been fantastic as well um i've been thoroughly enjoying that component of it as well because yeah there's games that are just getting and it's still happening they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger like, no, constraint would be nice i'd like to be able to finish the game actually i'd like to be able to finish the game let alone let alone in a timely yeah. fashion but um and not being sick of the game by the time you're actually getting to the end too yeah um, yeah, as much as I love the open world games, yeah, I do also feel the same thing where most open, big open world games, I think I always get towards the end boss or the end of the game, and I'm like, ah, yeah, I know I'll be able to finish it, because I'll get to that point where it's just like, I know that I've pretty much won this thing by now. Yeah. yeah. Um, Alex, anything there for you at all? Um, any differences? No, nothing nothing extra to add, really. No, not a problem at all. Um, so... I mean, Mike, you've highlighted already even some of those very, like something like an Age of Empires as being that really important moment to even determine, hey, like I want to I want to get into video games. But for the three of you, I mean, even in your case, Mike, I assume it's more than just that on its own. But was there a game or a collection of experiences that really helped you decide that, yeah, okay, video, I, I want to get into this beyond just purely consumption, but actually making video games myself? 
did you have was it a single moment was there a collection of moments did you just stumble backwards into it how, how did it all happen for me it was a bit of stumbling i think i mean you know growing up as as a, a kid on the computer a lot um and you know heading into university it seemed like computer science was a thing that made sense for me to do because i was proficient in computers so i did a computer science degree yep. and then I was basically at a careers fair towards the end of my studies um, and was just talking to people at the different booths. And I happened to talk to a guy um, from a company called Cerebral Fix who uh, basically said, you want to come in for an interview? And I said, uh, yeah, sure. I love video games. Um, but I had never really imagined that I would be lucky enough to get into the industry. Um, and yeah, I went in for an interview and got the job. So yeah, really just kind of stumbled into it for me, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I guess on my end, because like I'm on the artist on the Dredge project, um, I was like always been an artist. So I was always trying to figure out, all right, where is that career which will allow me to actually do art and actually make money and stuff like that? Yeah. Because originally it was like, all right, as an artist, what kind of jobs can you kind of get? And it's like, well, you don't really get money unless if you're painting anything really cool unless you're dead it seems like half the time anyway and then so at high school I started doing a lot of stuff for like all the graphics and stuff like that and I was going on a path towards becoming an architect and then I just remember going to one of the university open days seeing a banner like on the side of the road going up talking about media design school and making characters for animations and games and I was like oh that's kind of a cool thing and then just remember going to the open day and then always thinking about this other thing that I just saw on a billboard and then I got back home and then I was just like, huh, I wonder what I should do. Should I go into this whole game side of things or the 3D animation or should I go into architecture? And then I literally flipped the coin to decide whether I went into architecture or go into this media design school 3D animation course. And then so it turned out going to this animation course. And then ever since then, I've just been on this path going towards the digital art side and then into games. I mean, was there, like, obviously a coin flip is 50-50, but was there a little bit of a heart sway trying to pull you in one direction? Like, I mean, did you have, was it kind of like the head saying, I need to do this, the heart saying, I need to do that, and you were were you rooting one way or the other when the when that uh, coin well, was, was flying to the it end? was just about, like, the whole architecture thing was pretty much just like, yeah, you'll probably make money there, whereas the game side of things, it was still up and coming. So it's just like, yeah. this is more along the lines of my passions, but I'm not sure if it's going to be successful. And then the other side was like this thing you'll probably end up making money if you make it to that point and then so all of my other friends they went into the architecture course and i went by myself to this other random course and then i had my parents that were just like why are you doing the game thing you should be doing the architect thing but seems like i'm doing pretty well now so i'm glad i made that choice but i was pretty much like i'm good i was going to be good with either direction but i'm pretty bad with that i tend to make a lot of major life decisions on coin tosses anyway <laughs> Design design decisions as well in Dredge. Any any coin tosses? I was, to was going to make a joke about that, and I thought people might take it seriously, so I'm not going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's all right. I've done it for you. So, uh, in <laughs> fact, it turns out everyone that there's about ten or twelve of them, and you'll find them all when you start playing the game. Yeah, we use the dice for most things in Dredge. Yeah, no, we use dice. Yeah. <laughs> and Alex, how about you? Um, uh, I've always wanted to make video games. Um, when I was younger, I did things like. Like before I could get a Game Boy, I made one out of cardboard and drew little like pictures on it and then would like swap out the picture and be like, now I've gone right. Um, and it was real dumb. <laughs> I think it's really cool though. And this then it actually gone left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
and then like try to design RPGs and pixel art on you know that that math paper that's like in grids. Yeah, the grid paper. Yeah, I would use it instead of doing maths. I yeah. would do, I would make like pixel art, try to do that, and then in um in like high school, the uh, the subjects I did best in was was art, and there was nothing because there's no like classes you can take that are video game related. That made me that kind of like swayed me to do art, and then uh, yeah, I I studied that at Polytechnic and eventually managed to get a job <laughs> making games, which was kind of the dream. I've I'd always been doing it in my um in my spare time, um, trying to make games in Flash, even Blender at one point. They had a game engine, but they kind of I think they removed it. Yeah, okay, right. Um, and so I guess, Joel, you've already touched on it with um, Cerebral Fix, but that like that is a key point for all three of you. Arriving at slightly different times, um, over the course of about four years, you all uh, drifted in. But um, if, I, if I've done my, my LinkedIn stalking correctly. Um, so I guess what was it about for, for all three of you, and you've come in from different directions, but what was it about the studio that was kind of appealing in the first place was it it's a job to begin with i i mean yeah for me coming straight out of uni and not really believing my luck at getting a job in the games industry it was it was that um and then once i was there it was just a great place to work um you know you were sort of friends with everybody that you were working with and you know waking up in the morning and sort of being excited to go to work i don't think you could really ask for much more than that so yeah pretty good way to be yeah yeah, I think for me, it was like uh, after graduating from my game development course over at Media Design School, it was just like, all right, where am I trying to find that job? And it was only like a small handful of studios at that time in New Zealand that were actually around. It's like 10, 11 years ago. Yeah. And then um, some of my um, people that were in my class, some of the classmates and stuff, they'd all been assigned to work down in Christchurch at um, Fix and Stickman Studios at the time. There was two of them. They were kind of right next to each other. And then they were like, oh, we need an artist. And then so they just go, oh, wait, well, we know this other guy that was pretty good back at our course. Let's give him a yell, see if he's king. And then pretty much the next day, I was pretty much down <laughs> in Christchurch starting up straight away because I think before that, I was doing a couple odds and ends job to do with art and stuff like that here and there. But pretty much I was still on like the unemployment benefit, just waiting for like this whole game opportunity to come around because that was where I was set on going anyway. And then as soon as that opportunity came, it's like, yep, moving down when you need me all right i'll be there tomorrow and then just switched everything around just moved everything down now down to christchurch in the south island just overnight really sometimes you do what you got to do right and alex yeah, how did yeah. how did it all begin for you um uh i remember sending off applications for like every studio that i could find everywhere <laughs> um uh, Cerebral Fix was one of the few that got back and, and did an art test for and then eventually um, I also made friends with the best artists from Polytech um, which was a good move because when they got hired I knew somebody in there um, yeah I mean connections so, yeah. always help right yeah <laughs> connections was uh, a massive help yeah I mean those things like the the nature of the industries that, that you find yourselves in and obviously especially you know, a decade or so ago, it was a lot smaller. So sometimes, even I mean, you, Mike, you didn't directly mention it there, but similar sort of thing. It's you know, you've got people that you knew, they recognise that you had a skill set that might have been handy. They reached out, and twenty four hours later, you're in. Like having, I think, 
at any point really having that network is is super super important as the scene continues to grow and for anyone who's you know starting to come through the industry those those opportunities to network are things that people should absolutely take full advantage of yeah it's it's so important um which is why it's funny that we're all pretty bad at networking or at least i am <laughs> oh look if that's the case uh, fine but you're also pretty damn good at making video games though from my time with dredge so that kind of helps though right well thanks thanks <laughs> the collection of you all three of you i'm saying just to be, yeah, yeah just yeah. be clear there um so when did the three of you actually cross paths yourselves and i mean was there kind of an immediate click did everyone kind of yeah okay we're going to work together for for a fair while not just necessarily here but maybe beyond or like how did how did the three of you actually meet in the first place obviously all within the same studio but do you mean how did we decide to found black salt games uh, i mean that's no that's probably skipping ahead a little. i mean unless unless the three of you met really kind of towards the end and then just decided very quickly but i assume that i assume there was a, a friendship a relationship formed earlier on than than that so yeah well yeah and i mean obviously um nadia our producer is involved in the in the pound yes. black salt um but I, I guess as i mentioned earlier working at cerebral effects was you know we're all just sort of mates you know we're all going out and grabbing lunch together and and stuff um so i i think everybody's friends with each other and we were working on a lot of different projects um and projects you know would last from six months to, to two years and people are sort of moving around all the time between those projects where skill sets are necessary. So we all end up working with everybody um, eventually anyway. Um, yeah, so it's just sort of over the course of our work at Cerebral Effects that we just got to know each other. Yeah, I think one of the ones that I think we all touched on at the same time probably been, would, have, would have been like Ninja Tobu or something like that. That would have been the first time that all three of us, three of us found ourselves on pretty much the same sort of like project to some degree anyway. Yeah, so Ninja Tobu was an interesting project. It's one of the few that we're legally allowed to talk about, thanks to yep. non-disclosure agreements. Um, but but yeah, um, we essentially were, were learning Unity at the time, and we said, right, we'll give ourselves a deadline um, of shipping something in two weeks, I think, yeah. uh, while also learning the game engine. Uh, so you know, we went through a phase of prototyping, which is such an important phase, and is, is something that we still do um, regular regularly um we prototyped we came up with a good idea in fact i think it was alex that came up with the original idea he went home and came back the next day and said i made this thing and we all sort of loved it and then we worked on it for a few weeks and released it and it sort of ended up with a million downloads um over the course of over the course of time yeah that was surprising yeah (laughs) yeah but no small feat yeah Um, and so I guess where was the genesis of that idea? Obviously you went home, you thought and you came back the next day with something, but uh, what was kind of bubbling in the mind at the time that I guess coalesced into the game in the end? I don't know. It was, um, we, we had like a goal that we were trying to uh, design around right from the beginning. And it was like, wasn't it? It was, it was Pokemon it Go was, because yeah. Pokemon Go was that was when it was hit its That'd peak be the right craze, time for it, right? Yeah. And so everyone loved the whole flicking the ball, trying to catch the damn Pokemon and everything. And then so we came up with an idea yes. for I think the original concept that um, Alex drew up was just like a fat ninja flying through the sky. And then so the idea was if you're like throwing this round of ninja <laughs> at targets to try and move to places and get to places. So we did a whole bunch of stuff that was all kind of like in the 3D space. It was literally exactly like Pokemon going just moving him around and then alex decided to like switch it just make it 2d made it kind of like a vertical jumper platform sort of game and everything like that 
And then we said, that was pretty cool. And then it was a lot better than the kind of the 3D version that we kind of had. And then it just evolved yeah. from there. Yeah, because we, we had a, um, our, th- our 3D versions, which were, which were kind of fun. They were all chaotic and you couldn't really control you couldn't aim or anything yeah so once we made it um 2d it became it became much it was immediately easier to control um without the third dimension of that you couldn't really control on your little screen no that's all that's all that's all pretty cool and i guess from that point on was there like a little mini consensus amongst the group it's like we need we need to find more ways to to partner up again like it's taken it's taken a while to get to this point but like we need to replicate this we need to do this again um yeah i mean we were all still you know you work on one project and then you you split off again and you work on work on different projects it's it's hard to uh find the time uh when you're just a a work for hire company i guess um but there were there were opportunities um for us to work on games post pandemic um well post initial pandemic i'll say yeah yeah it's a weird (laughs) weird time on that one yeah uh i mean you know the the pandemic and and working from home all sort of sort of messed with things um but but getting back into work into the swing of things after that initial lockdown there was sort of an an impetus to diversify uh and try to make our own games um where we could um so there was there was some more work going on um at cerebral fix around that sort of stuff I mean, it's still like, any of those sort of decisions are big, challenging ones, especially yeah, amidst a pandemic, because there's so much that could work, couldn't work. I mean, let alone the fact that then then you actually broke off and formed your own studio as well. Like that's, I mean, that's that's skipping ahead a, a little bit, but um, I mean, there's a lot of risks involved with that, like and scary, regardless of whether you're a big, well-established company or an offshoot that's you know starting from scratch. So, I mean, what what was that like when these sort of decisions are being made? Um, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. It's it's a it's a risky industry as a whole, um, game True. dev. Uh, but I think I think work for hire, contract based work is is less risky than than a lot of stuff. Um, and I guess you know doing that as part of a larger studio, you have you have other other teams sometimes bringing in the money um, and paying for some of the work that's done prototyping games trying new, new things more risky ventures can sort of be counter counterbalanced with yep. with other work no uh, i guess that's a that's a fantastic i guess approach to the whole thing and um i guess what was it like working on video games amidst a pandemic there both obviously with cerebral fix but then also as you're then forming your own studio i think uh we as a digital industry had it easier than most other industries so I think we're lucky in that regards. There were certainly teething issues um, with regards to meetings and not everybody having webcams and every webcam in New Zealand being sold out uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, things like that. Uh, and there was, certainly a, there was certainly a drop in just communication and just overall mingling, you know, you're no longer going out and grabbing lunch with your mates every day. Uh, but I think, I think we handled it pretty well. Um, again, because it's a digital industry, and we we just can. I mean, looking at it as, from afar as, as a country, and particularly my state that uh, I think actually owns the record for the amount of time spent in lockdown. Uh, just looking looking from looking from uh, over there, going, eh, 
New Zealand seemed to handle, handle it pretty well. I'd imagine, <laughs> I'd imagine a little bit easier because you'd get these breaks where okay, we we can kind of get out and see each other again. We can kind of commit to a, a quote unquote normal life with probably a few little constraints on those. But um, I assume that made it just a little bit easier. Yeah, and I think we were we were pretty pretty cautious um, as a as a company. We didn't return to the office straight away. We um, and we basically all started working from, from home before the lockdowns began just because we were operating under an abundance of caution uh, and people were allowed to stay working from home for, for a long time. Um, even as, as lockdown sort of phased in and out, we sort of got into a rhythm of just working from home. Um, in fact, this, this year, this last month or so is the first um, like solid period of two weeks that I've been in the office. Yeah, right. I'm normally working from home as well. Um, and I guess is that for all three of you, is that kind of refreshing to be able to, I guess, get into that more quote unquote traditional sort of game development thing where you can kind of work in that same space a bit more often? Yeah, well, for me, at least, like, I hate having to work from home because I'm the kind of person that if I start working on something, then I'm going to keep working on it until it's kind of done. So yeah. during the lockdown, I just found myself just working nonstop just to get things done. So by when when i heard like oh we can move back into the office again like cool sweet jumping in first time first opportunity i get i'll work from the office even if i'm the only one there because i just need to have that separation between like work and like home life sort of thing because otherwise i just will it'll just be work will be my life yeah it's that separation of, of workspace i mean as gamers right we're just kind of like sitting on the computer at night anyway the transition yes. between sitting at the same desk working like when does that when does that cutoff happen? Yeah. That cutoff happens when you double click on Steam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was weird. Um, what about you, Alex? I mean, where, where were you at as as things have kind of transitioned in and out of various different states of remote versus face to face? Well, after after getting my home set up to kind of like parity with my work one, so like it's easy now because um, I've kind of got like the same equipment and. Yep. Uh, access to all the same files and everything. Um, now I, I really appreciate that I can jump between them. Um, I don't like being in any one for too long. <laughs> like eventually I'll, I'll want to have a day from home or a couple of days from home. But if I work from home too much, then I also enjoy uh, getting out of I want to come back into the oh, yeah the office. Um, and that's something that before the pandemic, I, I never worked from home, um, but it's really cool. I like that change a lot. No, that's that's awesome to hear, and um, I guess as we transition to this point where Black Salt was was being formed, um, how did you all come to this conclusion? And that's in, that's including Nadia, who's hiding off camera at the moment. I'm sure still. Um, how did you all come to the conclusion? Like, okay, I think like we're ready to form our own thing here. We've got the right skill sets. We've got the right people. I mean, did you have an idea straight out the gate as to what you wanted to, to create as well? well? I, th I think the conclusion was Nadia's, um, and the the idea was hers. Um, but when she pitched it to us, it made a lot of sense to us as well. And yeah. we had already, as I mentioned before, sort of been doing um, similar things within the company, and it just made sense to split off and really focus on it. Um, we had at, at that point, I think we had the self confidence that we could make something good. Um, and you know Nadia managed to carve out that opportunity for us to do it, uh, Excellent. and that's that's what happened. 
but I'd imagine still for for everyone involved, probably still a very scary prospect because there is a there is a support that comes with being part of a larger company, a financial one. There's there's all those sorts of things that you can rely upon that may not necessarily be there once you once you splinter off. So I mean, how is everyone feeling about about that particular prospect as well? Yeah, yeah definitely. And and look, we're still supported in in some ways, um, but uh, for me, going from a, a, as a programmer, always being in a team of other programmers, um, you know, when you're working on stuff, especially new stuff, there's always things, there's brick walls that you come up against and you're like, I have absolutely no idea how to solve this problem. All the links on Google are purple. I've already checked everything. I don't know what to do. Yeah. I need help. And the prospect of going from a company with a lot of backup to the only programmer in the company was was a big deal for me um and uh yeah that was that was one of my main considerations what about you alex how was your transition across Mm -hmm. i well what i really liked was um i mean i really like uh making art but also it's not it's i got into art because i wanted to make video games so um, favorite thing about uh Kind of like shooting off is that i now get to step on toes and like get to do some like programming or i get to do uh i've moved into more of like a tech art kind of space a lot of the time like doing a lot of shader shader work and um and also because we're a small team like there's this video editing there's all kinds of other things that come into it and marketing stuff and i i enjoy the variety a lot yeah you had your own little niche beforehand but now that beauty of yeah being a smaller independent studio is that you can kind of bounce around a little bit and sometimes by necessity yeah yeah mikey how about you yeah so for me it's an interesting one as well because um obviously it was the other three so alex joel and nadia they started up um before i was there so i was still working at our previous studio and i was the art department lead there so most of my tasks were assigned to revolving more around the managing all the other artists and trying to sort out that sort of stuff and i found myself doing less and less art as it was and then when there was an opportunity over at Black Salt, they're like, oh, it'd be really cool if you could join us. That'd be great. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome for me because I kind of want to get back to doing some of this art sort of stuff that I've been missing out on. And then so that opportunity came up and I was like, I can't let this one kind of go in everything as well. So as soon as that kind of opened up, like, yep, I am more than willing to like jump on part of this thing, get back into the art stuff. And like Alex said, I like to jump between a lot of things because I used to be the only 3d artist at our previous company for quite a few years yeah and then so i had to pick up a lot of like all right you're a, literally just a pure generalist so and you had to do all the rigging all the animating and stuff like that wasn't amazing at all of the, any of those things in particular but i just knew how to get stuff in and then this just leaned in perfectly to that where it's like oh we need some rigging we need some animating we need some shader work we need some vfx work and it's like i've already done a little bit of that stuff i can really use Jack my of all trades. That I've like got over the years and actually put them to actual use now as well as learning new stuff because that's the fun but when you're in a small team where there is a lot more of that having to jump into other areas that you wouldn't normally have those chances to do so with yeah Alex was just highlighting that and yeah it's certainly one of the the coolest aspect that I, aspects that I always kind of hear about when I'm talking to anyone working on indie games the yeah dabbling in other disciplines that they may not have otherwise because of the structure of those organizations and i guess for for both uh resident artists here uh, a little i guess a curious question for myself is oh, at cerebral fix you were working on disney ip you were working with uh you work on transform so and i guess there's there's constraints that go around those 
whereas when you're working on your own your own IP, your own project, you're really there from kind of square one building it up. There's that largely, I'd imagine, doesn't exist. So is that a nice refreshing thing as well? I'm sure I'm sure there's plenty of cool aspects to working on you know, some famed IP, but at the same time, this is a different sort of challenges as well so i mean what what was that like for the both of you as you jumped out and started working on your own thing as yeah opposed to there's Disney or less um having to go through franchise approval these days so <laughs> that was always a big thing you'd just be working on a character you think it's so good and then they want to change it up a little bit um the really cool thing is it's just like i really like alex's art style in general anyway and then so a lot of the stuff that comes through is just like oh sweet that's an awesome art style that's really in line with the sort of stuff that i like to make in 3d so this works out perfectly I mean, technically, my franchise approval now is just Alex in that regard, but he's a little bit lenient on things, I guess, anyway, so it works out really well there. (laughs) And it's all in-house, though, which is a nice luxury. Again, you don't have to send it off to a mega corporation to sign off or something like that. Yeah, The really quick turnaround helps as well, because if it's not like we're working with a franchise that's in America, so you have to wait for like 24 hours before you can kind of like actually fix something there anyway, Mm -hmm. so when you can just turn over to the guy and just go yo, does it look good? And then pretend to go like, oh, maybe change this up. Oh, maybe do this thing. It's super easy and super efficient. Yeah. Well, the best case outcome, yes, it does. And great, we move on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the, uh, I guess, a big difference is that because um, we we now set our own <laughs> our own standards and our own styles and, and stuff, which was, uh, I guess, a bit different. Um, I, I enjoy uh, getting to kind of like, apply a different uh or my, my own uh influence to how things look that's really that was really cool yep um it's probably that's probably my favorite and the biggest change <laughs> it's uh, a good one though yeah yeah it is for sure um and so i guess for for everyone involved what, what is the I mean, for anyone who's had a chance to see Dredge in action or even try it out through the various demos we were talking about before, um, there's there's it's it's quite a layered experience. There's a lot going on to it, despite the the kind of smaller open space that we we're discussing earlier on. Um, but what was the core of the idea at the very very beginning? Like, how did how did everyone kind of come to this this nugget? I guess. And, and I what was this, that? I love this question because I, I think the answer probably will surprise a lot of people. Um, and it's funny, you were talking about Newgrounds before and Flash games. And actually, I think Drades probably wouldn't have existed without uh, those those spaces. Uh, the original like core loop for Dredge came from my childhood memory of playing an old Flash game called Motherload, um, which is a side-on uh, mining game. It is a tile-based game where you play as like a mining robot and you like drill down through the earth, picking up gems and stuff, and then taking them back up to the top uh, to sell and then upgrade your your drill and your fuel tank and stuff. And every every move that you take costs you fuel, which is your primary resource. Um, and a lot of those things we sort of tried to translate over to, to dredge um, where instead of fuel it's time uh, and you, you know instead of gems it's fish and stuff yep. uh, and I guess just the the loop was really tight both in terms of uh, design and and time frame as well and we just really like games with those those tight loops and those sort of upgrade trees and mechanics um, 
I don't I don't exactly remember where the idea of uh, a Lovecraftian fishing slant on it came from, but it just it felt right. Uh, and and the name Dredge as well, like it, it wasn't there, there was no code name for this game. It was just it's always been Dredge because it just yeah, right. felt like it fit so well, even though the SEO is not particularly great. Um, we'll get there. Yeah, we will. <laughs> yeah, you will uh, that one over the line. That's fine. So that's yeah, just an opportunity to forge a new path. Game. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, is there anyone who wants to kind of claim a little bit of responsibility on the the Lovecraftian fishing idea? Is there anyone that perhaps? It, I mean, it, <laughs> I have I have a Google Doc where I wrote it down. I mean, the the idea was was still a little different. It was it was grid based at that time, and yeah. it was like top down and stuff. It was so it was so different. Um, but thankfully, the the ideation process sort of sort of pulled us in different directions. Um, yeah, I mean, these things evolve in time, right? That's that's just the nature of any video game being developed. So yeah, um, interesting to hear though. So where did uh, Team Seventeen come into the mix? Um, Team 17 approached us, I guess it was during our first, first year of development. We, um, we started working on Dredge at the start of 2021, I think. Um, years are a bit of a blur at the moment. Um, and yeah, we started putting things out on Twitter uh, pretty soon on when we were still sort of finishing up the prototype. Uh, and you know things looked a bit janky. There were like grey cubes in the scene and stuff. Um, but you know we were putting things out on Twitter because we were feeling pretty confident in, in the idea. And you know we were approached by a few publishers, which I never thought would happen. I was I was flabbergasted honestly to to be receiving like pu- uh, publisher interest emails. Um, but yeah, especially that soon. Yeah, yeah. Team Seventeen was one of those um, publishers, and uh, you know we we knew a lot about making games like the actual process of making the art making the programming uh but in our history of making games for other people we never normally had to market those games uh and all of the extra stuff that actually makes a game successful you know there's you can have a good game but you actually have to get it out there there's business and all those sorts of things yeah yeah we knew we needed some help on that side um so that was that was why we went with with Team Seventeen, yeah. Um, without wanting to even name the other the other companies and throw any sort of shade on them whatsoever, was there something in particular about Team Seventeen that really made them stick out amongst the pack? Because it's, as you said, it's a it's a handy luxury to have that you've got publishers throwing themselves at you to a degree. Um, but obviously, there's something that must have made them stick out above the others again not trying to throw shade at anyone else if you what if you're one of those other publishers and you're listening i'm not doing that i swear and i'm not putting <laughs> in that position um but what was it that just kind of just clicked i guess yeah i mean i, I guess there were there were no i don't remember any publishers that we were like no absolutely not these people yeah. um we were basically grateful for any any offer and any conversation that we had but in the end team 17 is just such a big name um and Again, talking about our history playing games, I grew up playing Worms as well. And of course. years ago, also having um, tournaments, playing Overcooked in the office and stuff, uh, just the gaming pedigree that they had and you know the, the opportunity to be just uh, attached to that name was, was big for us. Shared sentiment from, from the both of you as well? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like when I was like, oh, yeah, Team 17. Ah, I think I like some of their games. And I was looking at all the kind of games that I usually play with my mates on the weekends. I was like, 
man, I play a lot of Team 17 games <laughs> right now. So that was pretty cool to see like, oh man, that's kind of cool. But yeah, it really was that whole idea of like, they are pretty big, pretty well known in everything as well. Yeah. So we thought that that would be a really good way of at least getting our product out there to as many people as possible. Yeah, they have a lot of history and their name has like a legitimacy that comes with it of being Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's handy to have that sort of support, that experience, and yeah, that, that pedigree as well. Um, you probably, on your side, probably feeling pretty well supported at the time, and hopefully that's proven to be the case as well. I'm not asking, I'm definitely not going to ask anything there, but hopefully hopefully that's certainly a feeling that you've got now. Yeah, and Mikey touched on it as well, just the ability to reach more people, you know, translating the game uh, to a bunch of different languages. It's not something that we would have been able to do or afford um, without publisher support so that's just it's a win-win basically you know more people get to play it yeah sure yeah. I, I i think that's that was a really important thing in my mind as well because with a with a game that is like cosmic horror fishing i you know personally wanted to to reach as far and wide as possible because it seems like a niche idea so you need to um put that in front of as many people as possible as many people to find the audience you know that's that was one of my things yeah yeah and there's also the cable. whole idea of back at our old studio we only really dealt with like mobile and then kind of like slight pc sort of stuff but for the most part it was always mobile so we had an idea how to make the games on pc but no idea about any of the console sort of work either um so getting other people to help us out with the whole porting to all the other kind of consoles other than um switch because that was one that we decided that we would do switch and pc but no idea about how to set things up for xbox or playstation and then certification like, well, all those sorts of they things they might know a way of getting it out there rather than us having to hunt down another porting studio ourselves or something along those lines no it's a, it's a handy luxury to have and yeah I've, I've heard plenty of stories about cert over the years so totally understand yeah where the advantage of having a, a very well-versed publisher will make that a hell of a lot easier um yeah. and obviously alex you kind of spoke about reach and getting it out there in front of people and so i mean thankfully things pandemics wise have kind of eased up and so we're starting to get these big public events not just the steam next fests and those sort of opportunities that you've taken advantage of as well but um those more public showings i think about recently even me being a an australian the fact that pax australia was here and the game was there and i every time i walked past there was just legions of people queuing up or taking a look and trying to work out what was whatever it was there was a there was a huge crowd gathering around so what what's it been like being able to take the game to those sorts of events as well and and get those kind of mass market mass consumer opportunities to expose people to it but also get feedback and those sorts of things too oh i mean so i i was also at pack we were all at packs australia um and and that was crazy enough for me like that was uh, the first real gaming show I've ever been to, and I was I was pretty stunned at, as you say, the amount of people queuing to play the game. Uh, and it's not really a convention-style game. You know, it's an atmospheric horror, and you're, like, sitting there with, with average headphones on in, like, bright lights and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, but i was still i was still pretty floored by the engagement from people and uh, and the support um but just prior to that the rest of the team had been to gamescom in germany which i hear was even bigger that's huge yeah that was even crazier that's yeah. too big yeah <laughs> yeah it's everything i hear about that one is it's just it, it is yeah, too big is the right wording for it and it's just you must have felt like you're for one of a better phrase kind of underwater the entire time with the with the amount of people that were piling in 
I mean, we were lucky that we were more on like, I think dealing with the business side of things rather than on the show floor, because yeah. we decided like, oh, let's go check out, see our game on the show floor. And then just like, I just remember being at the top of the, like, one of the escalators, just looking down at just hordes of people just going backwards and forwards. And I was just like, man, is this where I finally get COVID or something like that? <laughs> like it was just this crazy amount of people and just like so much stuff going on, just halls and halls of just games and everything like that, right next to other massive games as well. I think we're right next to one of the Ubisoft stands. It was like, oh man, we're right next to other big name games and everything as well. So that was kind of exciting to see all of that stuff as well. And and you, you sent some pictures back of like the, the banner for our game uh, on like a three-story yeah. high thing <laughs> suspended from the ceiling. And I'm like, how how is our little game got such a big thing in this place? It, Thank you, crazy. Team 17. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, the, the actual feedback that you get from players along the way, I mean, how valuable has that been? It's, it's incredibly valuable. Um, I... I think I was I was most impressed by the the quantity of feedback we got from the the next fest demo as well because you know people had a had a real chance to sit down and, and play that and sort of get the game. Um, we had a we had an in-game feedback form where people could push a button and just type stuff and it would get sent straight to us. Uh, and I think we got something like a thousand reports. Um, yep. which Nadia went through and categorized all of them, and including translating all of them, because, you know, not all of them were in English. Uh, and, yeah, categorizing them into, was this person, did they like the game? Did they not like the game? Did they have a suggestion? You know, what sort of suggestion was it? Um, and being able to get that data and then sort of action some of that stuff. So, like, as a result of that, we were able to like add the Brazilian Portuguese language, and we added a few features and fixed some things. Uh, so yeah, that was that was hugely valuable for us. I mean, how that do you? Time... Oh, sorry, go on. I was just gonna say that was that was the first time we'd had really like such a, a quantity of people through our game, and and like those kind of numbers highlight different like different things too, because playtesting is a is a big part of our process right from the beginning. Um, but at that point, we'd never had that many people play our game, and the kind of stuff they come they come through with was really cool. And and the the type of people as well, you know, we, we've been playtesting since basically week two of the project, yeah. as I said, yeah. when the project was just grey boxes and stuff. Uh, and, and those people are colleagues, friends, family, and you know they start saying things like, "Oh yeah, it's really good. It's it's cool. It's cool." And then you know you start working with a publisher, and they say, "Yeah, yeah, it's it's good. It's really good." And you sort of don't believe them because it's kind of their job to say yes and be nice to you. And then we had 70,000 people play the Next Fest demo. And of those 1,000 uh, feedback tickets, something like 300 of them were just people saying, I love this game. I'm going to buy it day one. Awesome, awesome work. And it's like, wow, actually people do like the game. So that was that was a really big confidence boost for us, and as as well, like the the growth of the community and the Discord and, and everything uh, makes us realize that people like it. And yeah. It's awesome. And I, I didn't really believe it until we started. We got like a few that were like, "This game is not for me," because <laughs> then you realize that when if I haven't filtered any out, the game yeah. not for, it's like, okay, so this isn't fake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we got like four of those. <laughs> it was not that many. Yeah. Four out of a thousand. So you're running at a pretty good strike rate. I'd, I'd take that yeah, any day yeah. of the week, I think. But um, I, I think also 
without necessarily having been privy to what some of the playtesting had looked like, you're also you say you've got friends, it's publishers, those sort of things. So they've kind of got a certain way that they would look at the game, either through experience or whatever it happens to be. Whereas when you do take a game to a show floor or it's on a next fest and it's just this big public wide open thing, you're getting so many different people with so many different perspectives, levels of understanding as to how games are made, how they work, what does, doesn't work, um, that that really, really is valuable as well because those, yeah, those perspectives can really help shape something and just purely something you may not have considered before. Yeah, definitely, especially considering a lot of our colleagues work at another game studio. They, they know how to give good feedback on, on a prototype and, and what can change and what is likely to change. Uh, so yeah, it does, it does very much change the type of feedback that we get. Yeah, like because I think I probably went to the most amount of actual show, like in-person showcase things. So I did another one, uh, Day of the Devs over in San Fran yep. as well. And then so just seeing people that this might not be the kind of game that they play or they're not really kind of like console games or PC gamers and just seeing how they interact with the game for the first time. And then you just kind of sit in there just talk to them about the game and then they'll try to move the boat and they just do weird things with it. And like, this is how they think they should be playing. And then to come back and go, okay, I saw a lot of people playing it like this. And then they're obviously not reading that this is where they're fishing or like how to fish or anything like that, or they're just doing things at the wrong time. Maybe we need to figure out a way of making that a little bit easier for people that don't have that same level of like game understanding or at least yeah. the same lens that we kind of have on things all the time. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah, again, there's kind of a perspective that anyone who's been doing testing or is is on that publisher side, they just have naturally, and also probably an, a somewhat more intimate involvement with with you guys and the the project as well. So they they kind of understand it before they maybe go hands on, but someone who's never seen it before maybe never messed around in the genre and maybe has just never maneuvered a boat in a video game before or whatever the case happens to be this is foreign and that's that's a certain perspective of feedback that you really can only get when people just joe citizen actually gets to go hands-on with the game themselves yeah yeah exactly what have been some of the challenges along the way though oh challenges (laughs) And, that's and there's playing, always right? there's always plenty when you're forming your studio. <laughs> um, I think I think challenges have largely come from the design side of things because I think we tried to uh, not conform to a few uh, very popular sort of gaming tropes. I would say <laughs> that one of the largest uh, challenges has just been around our spatial inventory system, which is, I think one of the things that helps us stand out a little bit. Um, so yeah, in Dredge, you have an inventory system that is like a grid that is where you put your fish and your equipment and uh, passengers and cargo and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it just creates a lot of uh, potential issues for people when they interact with it because like you're picking up a quest item and oh, sorry, your inventory is full, come back later. And uh, then you have to write like dialogue for this character to say oh you've you've got space for this thing now you can now have this item which just doesn't exist if your inventory is an infinite list of items with no with no limit um and there's obviously the idea of giving people these sort of puzzles to move items around into your inventory while you're playing the game while things are maybe creeping up on you in the water uh yeah it just created a lot of a lot of challenges a lot of discussions you know we would we would sort of talk through and agonize any small change for hours basically saying oh this is going to have this sort of flow on effect um 
but I think it was a, a really important part of the game, so it was worth worth all of those um, worth all of that time. On the art side, any particular challenges that either of you have have faced? And um, I um, right from the beginning, there was um, a challenge in um, taking on extra roles and, uh, for for doing like tech art kind of stuff and shaders. Because yeah. right from the beginning, we had um, a huge mechanic of the game is the is the fog, um, and the fog is centered around the player, which is the boat. But most games, like all of the the built-in shaders and things, they they have fog centered around the camera, which is how fog normally works. Yeah. So the first the first challenge was doing that, and it led to us basically using custom shaders for for like ninety nine percent of the stuff in Dredge. Um, and then there was larger, yeah, issues like the water, um, which is uh, a challenging a thing point. to get right. Yeah, and it's it's a uh, interactive thing and it's also a visual thing so there was a look of it and then there was also how it behaves with your boat and how it affects your movement um we had to work on the, the player movement interacting with the waves and you can upgrade the speed of your boat so there was like how fast can you go before these waves become ramps um <laughs> and you're just like landing causes issues there was a long time where you could just sort of fly out into space by yeah. ramping off a wave at the right speed and at can, the right. Can you direction. send me that build? I'd love to just try that out for, <laughs> for a moment, just to just to see what it's like. Yeah, we had some really other fun ones where the waves kind of like take you away from the dock after uh, a while. Oh yeah, you'd yeah. leave, you'd come back from lunch and the oh, it's the just drifted. Would be looking at a dock and your boat's just gone <laughs> because it had just drifted somewhere else. Like it's just caught. Yeah, basically drifts off. Because and there was like things we tried at some point um, with like. There was there was like a brief uh, time when we were working on the water where the the waves would actually like sort of push your boat around a little bit, which is completely broken in a game where time only moves when you, when you move. So you yeah. could kind of exploit it because you could you let the waves push you out somewhere or you know. Um, so we had to we had to kind of yeah. There's a lot of challenges about, around getting the waves to move your boat, but not move your boat. <laughs> And then get those same shaders to work on something like the switch, which obviously oh, yeah. it's Ooh. like it's pretty much you're working on essentially something that's equivalent of a mobile phone, like as far as it's like power wise, which is yeah. a good thing because we've been working on mobile phone games for so long. So we managed to make things that were relatively optimized for the switch pretty well off the bat. But then after a while, I think towards the end, we're like, all right, let's have a look at this frame rate issue, see if we can figure things out. And then trying to reduce things there, like how many kind of optimization classes can we make? How far can we get it to actually be where we kind of want it to be? And I think we've done a really good job of getting it to where it currently is anyway. Yeah, we knew from day one that we wanted this game to be on Switch because it just had the right feel for it. Um, and so it we were developing for Switch and PC in parallel since day one, uh, yeah. which really helped us uh, you know, getting getting builds in parallel between the two. Yeah, no, that's um, that's awesome. But yeah, obviously, yeah, the switches, and we hear it more and more as we as we get towards the the end of the switches lifespan. I assume because Nintendo's not really being overly forthcoming in that space. But yeah, there are more and more of those sort of challenges starting to emerge as people start to tap what the what the thing can do. Um, yeah, God help us when Zelda actually comes out. I don't know what that <laughs> thing's gonna. It might just blow up in your hands. Um, <laughs> now she's hiding off camera, and I'm not going to ask Nadia to come out, but. Uh, the the project and studio management skills that Nadi brings to the table, I, sh- I assume they've been incredibly valuable to complement what what the three of you have all brought. 
I mean, yeah. I mean, as I said before, we wouldn't we wouldn't be here without Nadia. And um, uh, yeah, yeah. She she was uh, general manager, studio head uh, of Cerebral Flex for for the years leading up to us splitting off, um, managing a studio of seventy people, uh, and now she manages uh, about three people. Um, <laughs> But it's but it's us, so it's about equivalent. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't finish anything probably. No, that. <laughs> yeah. So really, it's what like we're saying, saying the driving like, force. Really though, and then so I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'm a bit optimistic there. <laughs> So everyone listening, while we're obviously we're, we're talking to three fantastic developers here, there's someone hiding off camera that we really need to make sure we're celebrating. Nadia doing a fantastic job. I'm hoping you can hear that. Um, so as we start to wind things down, I guess we've, we've kind of really touched on the game and some, some of the big picture stuff around that, but just on that more individual sort of level, is there anyone, we may have even just discussed the person, is there anyone who really inspires you in the way you go about your work on the day-to-day, whether it's through the art side, whether it's the programming side, whether it's a certain studio uh, studio management project management approach whatever it happens to be i mean i i think i'm inspired by by a few different things at a few different times um i i think overall i've been really inspired by team cherry and what they did with hollow knight and what they did for the indie scene uh in like delivering such high quality game uh and and I've I've wanted to you know I've aspired to delivering that sort of thing ever since I played Hollow Knight all those years ago. Um, so overall, I think I'm I'm inspired by them on a on a day to day basis. Uh, I think I'm inspired by the the guys next to me getting to do the programming for the awesome art that they create is like a dream come true. It's like the the most valuable thing to me is typing code and seeing something come to life yep. and you don't want to see the the projects i've worked on with no artist because they're just boxes on the screen um and they would be nothing without without these guys next to me well said uh, alex or michael yeah, that's also that's also my answer <laughs> <laughs> very well said and very diplomatic mikey yeah i think it's just like this whole idea of like the small studio that's just like trying to work on things like from like as a startup essentially trying to figure things out and it's like that whole kind of exploration and excitement and that whole journey that's really fun to go about doing things in that sort of way so that's what i really enjoy like i don't think i really liked or would like working with a a giant studio where you're like one artist that's part of like you're just a rock artist so you're just going to be making rocks for the rest of the year or something (laughs) like that so this sort of like small team with the people that you know and you know them pretty well because you have to be stuck with them the entire time so there's no real escape from either of them but <laughs> it works out pretty good so as long as you're with the people that you're like yeah i'm good being in the trenches with this guy so that's what really gets me through good to hear and um i guess there's probably plenty of these considering the pivot from a larger studio to now something much smaller scale have there been any particularly valuable lessons that you've learned along the way the things that kind of continue to maybe just bobble around in the back of the mind on any given day I, I guess for me, it's just um, having learned how to stick to deadlines yep. uh, and and just delivering things. Uh, it's all very well having a cool, awesome, big idea, but if you can't actually make it, no one's gonna no one's gonna see it. So 
developing the sort of smallest iteration of something and then making it bigger is something that I think is pretty fundamental to us as a studio as well. And it's been our approach for, for this project. I mean, there was essentially a way to play through the game when it was only three or four months old. It was all, again, gray boxes and sort of click here to continue sort of text. But starting on a small foundation and then building on that was a super important thing. Um, for, for either you, Alex or Mikey, in terms of even the art side or big, you know, broader than that? Uh I don't know if there's, or maybe I just can't think of any big things right now. I think there's just a ton of small um, yep. situational things that I've that come up um, that I've kind of picked up. That that yeah, lack of exposure me. to it again because of the the bigger scale company beforehand. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think on mine it's just like what I learned from the other company. It's just like all right, how to kind of like research things to try and figure things out for like get your job done. Because like I mentioned beforehand, I was always like a solo artist on that sort of thing. So because we had so many different projects that were all super varied, one day you're working on a mobile game, the next you're doing something in AR, the next time something in VR. So you're pretty much just trying to keep up with the latest trends in the technology and in the art world as well, because yep. there are so many new art tools that are coming out all the time. So just having all those years of experience of having to try and jump from one tool to the next or seeing one tool change and going, oh, why did they have to change that in Photoshop? It used to be so much better. And then like, do we even want to be using Photoshop anymore or switching from those sort of tools? And then so just not falling behind. And then that's something I've taken with me from the old studio to this one where now I'm like, oh, what's the next big thing that we could potentially maybe start looking into if we were going to do something to help increase productivity to just get stuff across the line with a smaller team? So uh, that's the sort of lessons that I take across here. No, awesome to hear. Um, some lighter ones before we wrap up that are totally off your actual development work path now. Um, for each of you, if you could be credited for any game, so just retroactively add your name into the credits. So I was responsible for this, whether it was right at the very top, whether it was just one particular aspect of a game that you really adored and you just wish you could have done that. Is there, a, is there an obvious game for, for each of you? Oh yeah, okay. I'll be I'll be credited for the um, technical direction of monster climbing in Shadow of the Colossus. <laughs> that is, I think, one of the most impressive things I've seen in video games. So yeah, credit me for that. Oh yeah, very good. No, also I think you might be the first person I've had who's actually gone beyond just oh, I wish I could have worked on that game and has actually gone really specific. So I really appreciate that answer. It's also an awesome game. <laughs> Um, I'm kind of envious of like the the art direction and um, like Disco Elysium. Oh yes, and, yeah, those guys. <laughs> That's great. Mark, yeah, for you. For me, I don't know. Maybe something in Dota. <laughs> Probably the game that I play the most these days, at least anyway. But yeah, I love the art and that sort of stuff as well. And then just there's so much things about that that just make me love it and hate it all at the same time. So <laughs> being a part of that would be pretty good. Not a voice pack artist. Not a voice. Announcer. <laughs> uh, few fantastic answers there. And uh, if you could go back and replay any game, so strike it from your memory and get to re-experience the game from scratch. Uh, Red Dead Two. Oh, I, I want to play Hyperlight Drifter again. Oh, uh, maybe two, two so the campaign of Age of Kings. Oh yeah, yeah, very, yeah. very, very cool. It's a selection of awesome answers that, yeah, I'd love to be able to wipe the slate and go with with all of those actually that, that's pretty cool um 
so thank you to the three of you for for joining me on the show today sharing sharing this journey so far sharing some wonderful insights into dredge um and so before we before we wrap up i should of course take the opportunity to acknowledge the fact that the game is awfully close i'll put the ball in your courts here to kind of because we are in a vague weird middle ground right now in terms of what we can and cannot say everyone will know some answers by the time this episode goes up which is a weird wrinkle in the mix but um what can we say about uh where where will people find dredge and do we have a rough ballpark that we're able to discuss where will you find dredge you'll find it on on every platform on every social media platform including tiktok um uh as for, well as for when when you will find dredge uh i i think i think all, all we're saying at this point is 2023 but there is a chance that by the time this goes out that there a date will have been announced so uh if you haven't discovered that date just naturally up to this point it's been probably four or five days by the time this podcast goes live please make sure to go digging through all the social channels which i should make sure to also give you all an opportunity to shout out as well plus um your own individual ones if you're out there and willing to have people kind of socially stalk and learn a bit more about what you're up to uh yeah and you can find us on uh black salt games is our handle on almost every platform and then our individual tags on on twitter are normally bsg underscore our names so bsg joel alex Mikey, I think I've got under Michael because apparently Michael. there was someone that was already a BSG Mikey and it's a weird profile. Well, not a weird profile. That guy's got a great profile, but it's not my profile. So. <laughs> Time to get on Elon Musk and tell him to delete that person. <laughs> yeah, need that official tech. Yeah. <laughs> but um, as I said, thank you all so much for, for coming on the show, sharing this journey. I've loved everything that I've seen of the game so far I'm re- and played of the game so far. Really, really excited to uh, try out that full release whenever it may arrive. Um, and again everyone if you don't know yet go check out social media check out YouTube whatever it happens to be you'll, you'll find what you need to know by now um, but again thank you all so much for coming on the show thanks a lot for having us great chatting with you and yeah, really fun awesome thank you yeah. thank you again and listeners as always thank you much for listening I'll see you next time That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until the next episode, however, that's been Joel's, Alex's, and Michael's stories. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.